The following message is from New Life Gillette series, Energy Source. This week, Pastor Mike presents part three of this series. Has anybody here ever been to Mexico? I've, I've been to Mexico. Uh, how many people have been to Mexico? You've experienced what I'm about to tell you about. When I went to Mexico, I was very surprised how easy it was to get in. We were on a cruise and it was one of those where you just get off in Mexico. And so it, I was like, is anybody going to ask us questions or we just walk in? Like, this is all we do. Okay, I'm going to do it slow just in case some guard jumps out and tries to attack me for doing it. No, that's it. You just walk in. Nobody really cares. Easy entrance. Go shop, hopefully buy a lot. Now coming back into the United States, that's a different story. Now they got a bunch of questions and they want you to show paperwork and sign this form and prove you don't have 10 million diseases and all these other things to get back in. A couple years ago, um, I went to Israel. And when we're going into Israel, you think it's hard to get into America. We're talking a whole nother level of entry requirements. There is an interrogation that happens when you are trying to get into Israel that is not exactly comfortable. I've never so much as stolen a piece of gum but when I'm trying to get into Israel and this military person is interrogating me, I'm thinking, oh, what are they going to find? What did I do? I'm racking my brain. I'm like, one time we went to my big fat Greek wedding and we hid and we stayed and watched it a second time. <laughs> Am I, what is this? Is this going to, are they going to find out about this stuff? Like, what, what have I done? I'm pretty sure the Israeli, Israeli people aren't big fans of Christians. I mean, they killed our leader and we added a bunch of books to their Bible. They can't like us. We keep filling up all their holy sites with a bunch of tourists. What are they going to find? They probably don't like us. I was nervous this whole time. Are we going to get in? By the way, if you would like to experience some fun things, out-of-the-box, unordinary life. If you're tired of the mundane, you should go to Israel with us. We're going in December, if I didn't just scare you away. <laughs> December 27th. I've got brochures up here if anybody wants to go with it. It's, it's going to be a life-changing experience, uh, and it will make you see the Bible in a whole new way. So if you can, join us. I think a lot of people think about Christianity the way I just described Israel. Like there's an entrance exam and there's all these requirements and an interrogation and making sure that you don't have too many diseases from your past life and are we gonna allow you in and what kind of habits do you have and what do you do with your life? And we just gotta make sure that you're good enough to get in. And we just, we draw some lines right. And we, we don't say come as you are, we say come as you are if you're not in this community. If you don't do these kind of things, if you don't have this in your path, past. No, New Life, we say come as you are. That is the story. No matter where you've been, no matter what you look like, no matter what you've done, come as you are. We're in a series right now called Energy Source. There's a, we're going through the book of Colossians, and there's a theme in the book of Colossians that describes Jesus as our source of energy. That, that we have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. 
And we like to add on all these other rules and regulations and we like to complicate it and, and say, well, yeah, Jesus is enough, but you got to do these things. And we like to add on to it a bunch of things. And there's a theme throughout the book of Colossians in which he says, no, Jesus is the source of everything that we need. Everything we need comes from him. And today we're going to talk a little bit about even when it comes to our entrance into heaven, our adoption into God's family, what gets us there? What, what are the requirements that get us there? So we're in Colossians chapter two now, and we're going to start in verse 11 today. It says this, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised. So circumcision was an entrance requirement to be a Jew, an enter, entrance requirement to be a part of God's family in that time but not a physical procedure. So now he's talking to Christians, not to Jews. He says, Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature, not of the skin that was before, the sinful nature. It is a spiritual circumcision for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And this is a verse that has had a lot of argument in Christianity for over a period of time. Does, is this saying that you have to be baptized for you to be a member of God's family? Is this saying that you have to be baptized to be a Christian? Actually here, that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul is referencing, just as he just referenced a spiritual circumcision, not a physical circumcision. He's saying the same thing when it comes to baptism. He's talking about a spiritual baptism. So it's what our water baptism signifies. It's something deeper than water baptism. It's something uh, a greater, more spiritual than water baptism. Water baptism is meant to signify the baptism that Paul is talking about in this passage. Mark calls this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's salvation. It's adoption into God's family. Baptism is meant to show that we were buried with Christ. We died with him and we were raised to new life. That's the baptism, salvation into God's family is what the baptism he's talking about here. And with him, you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. God raised Christ from the dead. New life. We are new people. When Darcy and I got married, uh, my grandma was still living at the time. My dad's mom was still living. And immediately after we got married, my grandma comes up to Darcy and says, you are a new person. You are not who you used to be. Now you are a pastor. If you marry a pastor, you are now one flesh. You are now a pastor, Darcy. And she started for the rest of uh, the time that she lived calling my wife Reverend. And so she would walk up to Darcy and she would say, Dar here's the problem though. She couldn't remember Darcy's real name. She kept thinking Darcy's name was Marcy. So she just, you're one flesh. She just combined our names, Mike and Darcy. You're now Marcy. And so for the rest of our, her life, up until recently when she passed away, she called Darcy Reverend Marcy. And so she was quite off. But her idea was right, that when we are adopted, when we are married together, we become one flesh. This is what happens to us when we are saved. We are married to God. We become one with him. He is our father, yet he is, we are also part of his body. It continues. 
So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbath. So remember, Paul is writing from prison and he has been imprisoned falsely. People said that you should not do whatever it was that they said he did. Well, he didn't do what they said he did, but he's in prison anyway. In other words, don't let people condemn you. I'm being condemned. I have firsthand experience for this. Don't let people condemn you because people are going to say, you got to follow this rule. You got to add this rule. You got to all these man-made laws into your life if you want to be good. Because we have this constant pursuit of, I want to be a good, I want to be an upstanding person. I want to, I want to be above board. And all, everybody takes advantage of that. They're like, oh, if you want to be good, I've got a rule you've got to add to your life. And, and Paul's saying, don't let them do that to you. At this time, there's a bunch of Judaizers trying to tell the Christians that they've got to follow the Jewish laws. Don't let them tell you that. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. There were some Christians still at this time teaching that everybody had to obey these man-made laws, but we are free from that. Don't let religious leaders use made-up laws to control, control you. Have you ever in your lifetime had religious leaders tell you you have to do something and you're looking at the Bible and you're like, I don't see that in here. So why are you saying I need to do that? If there's that disconnect, then maybe you should pull away from those religious leaders. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Or they say, God told me, now all of a sudden I've got to obey anything you said because you said God told you, so now I got to obey. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. Paul's saying, why would we keep following old laws that have been removed, that are no longer in place? Our new life in Christ has, be, has begun. We don't wait until heaven to start celebrating the freedom that comes in Christ. We don't wait until heaven to start celebrating the gift that has been given to us. We are free from sin now. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows, this is a beautiful passage, and it grows as God nourishes it. This is talking about the body of Christ, us. We are his fellowship. This, I think this is one of the coolest passages in the whole Bible. So much freedom comes from this passage. When we become a part of God's body, we are adopted into his family, and then he grows us. And then God matures us. Then he teaches us. He convicts us. He leads us. He also protects us. He also provides for us. There are, is a lot of grace that comes from being in God's family. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world? Why do you keep, and now it's, he's about to list off some rules that people try to force on to these Christians, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Sound familiar? We're part of something called the whole holiness movement. The Wesleyan denomination is part of the holiness movement. And for a while, the holiness movement, I believe, forgot what holiness is. 
For, we, we forgot that holiness has nothing to do with good works. Holiness has nothing to do with do not touch, do not handle, do not eat, do not drink, do not whatever it is. That, is, that does not make us holy. Because our holy is not achieved by our actions. Our holiness is achieved by Jesus and Jesus alone. We cannot achieve our holiness. We can do nothing to make ourselves holy or even anything to keep us holy. Only Christ can make us holy and he can keep us holy. So we surrender to him. Such rules are mere human teachings, not from God, about things that deteriorate as we use them. So this movement that we're part of, the holiness movement, came up with a bunch of rules because we have to act correctly in order to be holy in their opinion of holiness. And so they, they added rules to scripture, things like don't dance. This one's quite funny to us that have written, writ, have read the Bible because we see a lot of God's people dancing. And it's like celebrated. So like, why did we add that rule? Okay, we added the rule, don't play cards. Ladies can't wear pants. And we, all these other, don't go to movies. You can't drink alcohol. You can't do all, on and on and on. Added all these rules. You can't find them in scripture. Actually, you find God's people doing these things all the time. But for some reason, if we want to be holy, we've got to add all these rules. Paul's saying, don't listen to them. Listen to God. Trust his word and follow him. Holiness is not about keeping rules, laws. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, right? To follow that list of rules that I just gave, that requires some strong devotion. So it seems, okay, you must be holy. You must be wise. These rules may seem wise because they're hard. They require pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline. The problem is, as we become better and better at following these rules, what actually happens is we don't become better, we become worse. Why? Because we become more prideful. I'm following the rules. And we become the Pharisees who are judging the rest of the world for not following the rules that we made up. I made up all these rules, and now I'm judging you for not following them, and I'm building my pride because I do. All these rules do are make us think that we are better than everybody else. And if we add all these pointless rules, then we follow them. How does it make us any better if we're following rules that we made up? Doesn't make us better. Doesn't make us more moral. We made up the rules. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Those things provide no help actually in the long run. So we were at uh, Las Margaritas the other day. And we're sitting in the booth and the kids are just going crazy. They are so hyper. One of those days where it feels like it's taking everything you have to just get them to sit still. They're making a ton of noise. They're fighting over toys. At one time, they're wrestling on the floor. And I've had it. So finally, I grab one of these kids and I walk them over to the entry. And I was like, listen, I took him out and I gave him a spanking. And go and sit back down. We started eating our meal. Things are a little bit, everything settled down a little bit. And all of a sudden, a cop walks in Las Margaritas and grabs me by the arm and walks me out to his squad car and starts asking me 
about this. Apparently, what world do we live in if a guy can no longer spank another people's kids? <laughs> Apparently, this is across the line. <laughs> that didn't actually happen. But I think a lot of us, that's what we think our job is. We're looking around and my kids are behaving fine. What's wrong with your kids? And so we think it is our job now to enforce our requirements, our understanding of what is acceptable and what is not on other people, right? And this is, we think God is the judge who's judging all of us for our behavior, that we got to pass some test later in life, that there's going to be a test. And if we were good enough, then we pass the test. Now, boom, we're in heaven. That is a false version of Christianity that was made up not using scripture just because we want to control people by adding rules to their life. There's not a test about how good you were in your life. And God is not a judge going down a list of all the goodness that you did in your life to determine if you get into heaven or not. When God looks at your life and he determines whether or not he will adopt you into, your, into his family and bring you into his kingdom, he is looking at one thing and it is not you. He is looking at one thing. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that question, what did you do with Jesus? Did you have faith in him or not? Determines everything else. It is not your actions. It is your faith, your trust in him. That is the question that gets us in or doesn't. And Paul in this passage is trying to get us to change our minds. And we still have, are falling into the same temptations they fell in back then. He's trying to change our minds. This is no longer the requirement. Jesus is now the source of our salvation. Because I ask myself on a regular basis, why would non-Christians follow the rules of Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus? We think that it is our job to enforce Jesus' morality on America. I've got to get all the Americans doing what Jesus told us to do because it's right. But why? what justification do we have to them when we go to them and say, you got to follow this rule, you got to do this, Jesus says this, Jesus says this. Like, I don't believe in Jesus. Why would I do the things that Jesus says to do? Because what did we do wrong? We started in the wrong place. Rather than starting with Jesus, we started with rules. We've got to start with Jesus. We've got to give them Jesus first. They've got to put their faith in him. They've got to put their trust in him first so that then when we talk about what Jesus says, okay, I can, if I believe in him, then I'll listen to what he says. We think God is some angry dad in Las Margaritas spanking other people's kids. That's not what God's doing. God's looking at his children Jesus, Paul, are looking at their children and saying, this is what's best for you. This is what's good for you. And they do give us rules. They do give us an outline about how to live our life. They do give us instructions, but it is them giving it to their, their children. It is me teaching my son. We're getting ready to come to church this morning and we're walking out of the door and my son, everything's totally fine. And all of a sudden he's just starts bawling uncontrollably bawling. I said, Lincoln, what is wrong? And he said, I'm just tired of everybody being the boss of me. <laughs> I want to be the boss. <laughs> 
And I'm like, dude, I can relate. I, that is, you have my personality or something because I, I do not like anybody being the boss of me. But I said, Lincoln, I am your boss because I love you, because I know what's best for you. I have wisdom that you don't have. And I, he, I'm talking way over his head, but I just start, I'm going into my sermon in this moment. I'm like, I tell you what to do because I love you. I give you instructions because I know what's best for you. So when I tell you to comb your hair and brush your teeth and put your clothes on and you're tired of me bossing you around, it's because I don't want you showing up hungry and naked and a reject to church because I know what's best for you because I love you. This is why God gives us instructions. This is why God leads us because he loves you. He cares. He wants what's best for you. And when we know that God's instructions come from a place of love, then it's easier to follow. We cannot change the world with rules. We can only change the world with love. We have to start with love. God's nourishing process begins with love when he adopts us into our, his family. We become his children. We want people to change before they become Christians. We want to set up an entrance exam. God says, that's not how I work. He says, become my child and then I will change you. Then I will mature you. I will convict you. And sometimes that maturing process may include some spankings. Not physically, but may require some discipline. I know what's best for you. And because I love you, I'm going to push you onto the right track. And he'll do that. If you put your faith in him, you put your trust in him and you allow him to, he will discipline those that he loves. He will change us. Author of Hebrews says, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. I know it's sometimes hard, Lincoln, when you're getting in trouble, but it's best. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his children. Now, other people's children, he's got other priorities with other people's children, but with his children, there's some discipline that helps us to become who he created us to be. When we think we're better than everyone else because we follow some rules or because we separate ourselves from everybody and we do things differently and we look unique. But that's not what Jesus told us to do with other people. We're not measuring their life to ours. We are commanded to connect with them. Hence, Jesus having dinner with prostitutes. Like, Jesus, you can't do that. That's not okay. Jesus says, start with love. Start with generosity. Paul says, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. And then he clarifies. Next slide. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers. This is important. He's like, listen, Corinthian church, I told you not to associate with sinful people. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers. That's a different conversation. Jesus associated with sinful people who indulge in sexual sins or are greedy, or cheap people, or worship idols. He says, you would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. And a lot of Christians are like, 
challenge accepted. <laughs> and they build a bunker, they fill it full of food, and they never go out because they don't want to associate with those sinful people. This world is falling apart and everybody's doing terrible things. And Jesus says, get out and love some people. Jesus hung out with all of them. But we protest them. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer. So a part of the family yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Oh, now this changes things. And I'd like to change the way Paul says this, but I'm going to have to go with what he said because he's the apostle Paul. When we were adopted into God's family, he changes us. But if we resist that change, and sometimes our timeline for people's change, our timeline for us is pretty slow. Like I allow change in my life to happen slowly because I recognize how hard it is. I look at other people's lives and I expect the timeline of change to be rapid. Last week I told you to do this and you haven't done it yet, so you're not a Christian. You're out. No, the Lord disciplines those he loves and he disciplines his children. But sometimes he disciplines for things that we don't expect him to discipline for. Sometimes he prioritizes action or behavior or lifestyle that we don't prioritize. We created some hierarchy of sins and we said these sins are worse than these sins. And if you, well, if you, whatever, I'm not gonna give examples because that just gets awkward. We said some sins are like the ultimate sin. And what if Jesus's ultimate sins are different than our ultimate sins? The reality is they are. Usually Jesus's like top priority sins have a lot to do with how we treat each other, how we love each other, whether or not we're gossiping about each other, whether or not we're generous with the things that he gives us. That's his hierarchy. Are we prideful? Look at the only people that Jesus tend to judge when he was here on earth. Who were they? The religious people, the prideful people, the ones who are trying to enforce their rules on everybody. That's who Jesus goes after. Jesus is like, no, that's not your priority. Help each other, build each other up, sit in the life group and have a discussion about how you can mature each other, how you can help each other grow and hold each other accountable. Verse 12 says, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Can it get any more blatant? It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. And honestly, this convicts me. When I think about sitting in my life group, sometimes I think, I think we could do a better job of this. Because a lot of times we shy away from giving advice, from helping people to see weaknesses in their life that they don't see in their own lives. And we, we shy away from saying those things in our life groups because, well, that would just make things awkward. We'll just sweep, sweep it under the rug and we'll just move on. And we can't all be constantly yelling at each other for not being as good as we are. That's not what he's calling us to. Just like help each other, hold each other accountable, build each other up. If somebody is weak in an area and they don't realize it or they want to admit it, then call it out and say, how can I help you grow? How can I help you mature? Let's deal with it together. Let me love you in this way. Paul clarifies, God will judge those on the outside. So I am not saying that, the, that non-Christians won't be judged. I'm just saying we're not the ones to do the judging. That's God's job. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. That person who just, they, they claim to be a Christian, but you could never tell it by the fruit in their life. 
They, they claim words from the Lord and revelation from God, and they've got, they have all the answers, but you just never see growth. You never see maturity, and their gossip is causing problems amongst you. And, and the division that they're causing in your, among your church is causing people to leave rather than come. At some point, you got to just say, listen, you, you can deal with God on the individual. But if, if your actions don't begin to align with what you say you believe at some point, now not on our timeline, I'm not talking about rushing growth, but at some point you have to draw a line and say, hey, we need to see some growth here. Okay, I need to point out a few sins of some people in the room. Where's Misty Powers? Is Misty here? Just kidding, we don't have a Misty Powers. Um, one of my favorite preachers says this. He's passed away, but he said this. Discipline is the fruit of conversion, not its root. It's the result of conversion. It's the result of being adopted into God's family. It is not the entrance exam. It is, it, it's not what causes our salvation. We don't discipline people to make them Christians. Become a Christian and God will discipline you and grow you and help you to become a better Christian, a better person. Become God's child and that will invite you to a better life. For, a, I don't know, a few months now, my mom has been going through old VHS tapes and those little, whatever those tapes are that fit in the little cameras that we had when we thought we were so technologically advanced. Now our phones put those things to shame. My mom's been going through all these tapes where you got to like rewind for, and then sit there forever while it rewinds. Remember back in the old days? That was, yeah. and so mom's watching these and there's some box where you can send them to these people and they put them onto a disc or whatever. And, and so she's going through all these videos trying to decide which ones are worth keeping. So um, she's throwing away all my brother and sister's stuff and keeping mine. <laughs> and watching these videos has really been eye-opening to me because when I look back on my childhood, number one, I realized I was crazy blessed. Like, I, I, I don't know how God was so kind to me. He put me in a house with godly parents. Everything wasn't perfect, but with older brothers and sisters who were actually following the Lord and were setting a good example for me. My parents like gave everything up to raise us in a Christian school. Like I had a good, but for some reason, when I look back on my childhood, all I can think about are my regrets because I'm naturally a very self-critical person. I'm always thinking about my flaws. I'm always thinking about the things that I screw up. And so when I look back on my childhood, that's all I see. All I can see is the times that I looked on the internet for dirty things that I was curious about or fought with my brother or called my parents names or whatever I did. And, and all I can think about are those times and those stand out. I was such an arrogant kid. I was so hard headed and, and I was always fighting and that's all I can think about. Now I'm watching these videos and I'm thinking, you know, I think I'm a little bit hard on myself. The obnoxious, arrogant one was my brother. It wasn't me. He, I'm good. Now he's got some problems, but... And I'm watching these. Another thing that I've learned and I've, I've been thinking a lot about and watching these videos from my childhood is, wow, I'm not that person anymore because I wasn't perfect. 
And I've done a lot of growing. I'm still not even close to perfect, but I've done a lot of growing. I don't struggle with the things that I struggled with back then. I'm not tempted by many of the things that I was tempted by back then. I've grown in my life. And in the maturity that God has brought me on, even when I look at my life, all I can see are the things that I need to improve. Looking back a little bit makes me realize, okay, God, you've done something. You've helped me in some ways. Thank you for what you've done in my life. And it's slower than I would like it to be. But thank you for how you're maturing me. I think many of us need to take this kind of inventory of our life because we get down on ourselves. We get angry at ourselves and we're not maturing fast enough. And we convict ourselves. And sometimes we need to look back and say, you know what? I, God brought me from this. God, God rescued me from that addiction. God rescued me from that habit or that temptation. God rescued me from that lifestyle. And celebrate that and allow that to give you courage to, to become the person that God created you to be. Because that's an ongoing journey. You're not there yet. You're not who God created you to be yet, but you're growing. If you're following him, you're maturing. And trust him, trust his process that he knows what's best for us. And I'd say this to the moms in the room. I talked to quite a few of you who are discouraged about the spiritual health of your children. And you wonder if God's ever gonna grab a hold of them or if God is, if they're ever going to begin following him, the number one tool you have in that conversation is your love for them. Don't, don't step out ahead of that love and assume that conviction or enforcement or, or anything like that is going to lead them to God. The number one tool you have in leading them to him is prayer and love. Love them with everything you have throughout their lives and pray for them constantly that they will seek after him because he's knocking. He wants to be a part of their life. Pray that they will open the door and allow your example and your love, whether it's in your lifetime or not, to be what draws them to him. And then for those of you who have children who have said yes to Christ and who have been adopted into his family and you look at their lifestyle and you just think, but they're not living it. They're not doing the things that I want them to do. I would ask you to add a word of faith to that statement and say, they're not who they should be yet. They're on a journey and trust God to do what you cannot. Trust God to grow them, to mature them, to lead them and to convict them because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Have faith in him, not in yourself and not in your children. Have faith in the Lord to discipline those he loves. We believe that he does it, not in our timeline, not in the order we expect him to, but he will discipline those he loves and we trust him to do so. And when you look at your own life, have faith in him to grow you as he has planned. God, I thank you for how you have knit us all together, created us for a purpose on purpose. God, I pray that in this life, we would replace our doubts, and our judgment with just incredible love and faith in you to do what you know is best. So we put our lives in your hands and we put the lives of those we love in your hands. And we thank you for how you work. In Jesus' name, amen.